Welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of drinking. Coming up in a bit, I talk with Leah Jorgensen, who's one of the most exciting and dynamic winemakers in Oregon, all the more so because she's not making a single drop of Pinot Noir. First, though, a thought. If you can't tell from the sound of it, I've been fighting a bit of a cold recently, and tasting wine when you're sick is a really interesting experience. It's definitely not something I would recommend per se, but it does offer some insight into how fragile our perceptions of wine can be. And personally, when I'm sick, I find myself much more sensitive to things like uh, acidity and alcohol. Uh, while a high acid wine might not jump out at me when I'm fully healthy, when I'm sick, it almost hurts. It's a reminder that uh, our sensory evaluations of wine can be really influenced by a wide range of factors beyond the wine itself, from the temperature of the room to the type of glass being used, from how recently the bottle was opened to how aggressively we've swirled it. Uh, that should be enough to give us all pause when it comes to assuming that a given wine will always taste a certain way, and remind us that enjoying a specific wine requires synergy between a bunch of different elements. Anyhow, I'm going to go grab another cup of tea, but please enjoy the show. Joining me now on Disgorged is Leah Jorgensen, the owner and winemaker for Leah Jorgensen Cellars, based in Portland, Oregon. Leah makes some exceptional wines that manage to fuse her love of the Loire Valley with the viticulture of some of Oregon's lesser-known regions, and they're wines that I, quite frankly, love. Uh, Leah, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So my first question for you is a really simple but also very broad question, which is how did you get into wine in the first place? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, um, I don't have this you know, sage story of being, you know, a youngster in a vineyard and having that epiphany, nothing like that, actually. Um, I kind of just found my way into the industry. Um, I was working at a corporate think tank in Washington, D.C., and um, it was the 90s, and it was like that dot-com era, and it was very competitive and high stress, and at the same time, um and it was a lot of fun. There's a lot of travel. It was just this time in my life where um, while that part was interesting and exciting, I wasn't doing anything that I was remotely passionate about. And so I was kind of having a, I think I had my midlife crisis young at, in my twenties. <laughs> so um, I just decided to walk away from this great job and manage a little wine shop in Washington, DC in DuPont circle. And that's really where it all started. Gotcha. I can imagine that that was the kind of job, the the think tank job was one that probably required a lot of wine just to get through. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I figured if wine and champagne. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. So obviously, you know, going from um, running a, a wine shop in Washington D.C. to making wine in Oregon mm -hmm. is a big jump. And I and I'm curious. I know you have some family connections to to Oregon. Um, and was it just sort of was the the reason you decided to go out there and start making wine that, or was it that you tried wines from Oregon that you really felt were intrigued by or, or what? Yeah. I mean, I had some Oregon wines um, from the beginning in the, in the little wine shop that I managed um, that impressed me. In fact, in particular, it was a, a Ponzi um, Pinot Noir and that would have been like a 2000 maybe. I don't know. Mm -hmm. This is, Oh gosh! No, now you're I'm not gonna, gonna get. You're not gonna get fact yeah. on this. Don't worry about it. No, it was way before that. It was in the '90s that I, you know, it was a '90s vintage. But yeah, in any case, I had a, a Ponzi Pinot Noir. That was my first Oregon Pinot Noir that I tasted. That in a Christum, and I was like, wow, this is really, really special. And um, from there, I mean, yeah, there was a there were a few jumps along the way that got me out to Oregon. I left um, that wine shop to work at a vineyard in Virginia and got to learn a different side of the business. And then from there, I went to work for a distributor in Washington, DC. And 
um, me, all the while I was studying for the WSET and did the, got up to the advanced degree or the advanced certificate in wine with the WSET Wine and Spirit Education Trust. And I finished that in like 2002. Um, and I worked for a distributor and I happened to be, you know, I was a pretty good salesperson um, in that I, I just loved going into accounts and, and talking to different wine buyers and chefs and, uh, I just had a lot of fun. I had mostly restaurant accounts in Washington, D.C. with like maybe 10 bread and butter retail accounts, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean by the bread and butter. They were the ones that just ordered a lot, yeah. volume. Um, <laughs> and uh, anyway, so when I was working for this distributor, uh, unbeknownst to me, there was a contest with Dreyfus Ashby um, with a salesperson uh, in the U.S. to to represent them and go to Pinot Camp, Oregon Pinot Camp. Mm -hmm. um, and my coworker and I, apparently we had the best sales record that year and we were the two who won this trip. So we packed up and headed out to Oregon for Pinot Camp. Uh, again, that was 2004. And it just totally changed my, my whole life, obviously. I was there three hours and I was like, I'm moving here. And it's pretty <laughs> much how it worked out. Yeah. But my father's from Oregon. My dad was raised on a farm in Eugene. And um, he went to the University of Oregon. He went to high school in, uh, in Eugene. So his whole family was um, in Eugene and Corvallis. So, um, and my grandparents are buried in Eugene. And yeah, so his family is, is from here. So it was kind of nice to, to reconnect uh, to some roots that I had because um, he was in the service and we traveled and, and it, we landed in the Washington, D.C. area. Gotcha. And that's where I grew up. That's where I grew up. Yeah. So you make your way out to Oregon to the, it's, you know, the mid two thousands. And mm -hmm. as is the case now, in many ways, Pinot Noir is, you know, the alpha and the omega of winemaking in Oregon. And that's maybe <laughs> a little bit of a, of an oversimplification. Obviously there's, you know, people growing, there's Chardonnay, there's Riesling, there's Pinot Gris, uh, there's a little bit of Syrah, but you know, and obviously I, I would imagine that your early experiences since you, you went to work for some wineries first, right? You didn't, you haven't been doing your own wine for that long. Um, so Correct. I imagine you worked a lot of Pinot. At what point did you yep. say, you know, that's great, wonderful, Oregon, Willamette Valley Pinot Noir is great <laughs> stuff. I have no interest in making that. <laughs> or maybe you do have interest um, in making it and then you just don't. <laughs> no, no, I really don't. And it, and I'm I'm in love with Pinot Noir. It's, it's a wonderful grape and a beautiful wine. Um, and a lot of my friends make exceptional versions of it. But um, yeah, when I came out here, I worked and basically ERAS moved me out and I was, I handled national sales and marketing for them. And then um, when St. Michelle purchased, I was part of that process. So I went up to St. Michelle and helped with the transition. Um, that was like 2006 or 2007. Um, and so I worked up there for a year and I not only worked with Erath and Pinot Noir, um, and I also served on the Dundee Hills Wine Growers Association. I was a founder, and I was a founding board member, so I was very involved with the Dundee Hills Wine Growers Association. And um, when I moved up to Woodenville, um, I yeah, I still worked with Erath and the Dundee Hills Wine Growers Association, but I also took on um, what they considered some of their other luxury brands. So I did marketing communication for. Um, Colsolari, which is a project with the Antonori family mm -hmm. up in Red Mountain. Um, and then the two properties in Walla Walla, which includes Spring Valley Vineyard and um, North Star. Mm -hmm. And then I worked with 
those are the, those are the main wineries I worked with while I was up there. It was great. I loved it. I learned so much working at St. Michelle. They're a great company. I mean, they, they really advocate for Northwest wines, not just Washington, but they've put, they've helped to put the Northwest on the world wine map mm-hmm, for, sure. uh, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. So it was a great place to work and learn and absorb, but I really, my heart and soul was Oregon. I mean, that's where my dad was from. I wanted to be in Oregon. Um, but it was nice to have an introduction to some other grapes um, and to taste different wines and to see just a different spirit of the Northwest. And coming back to Oregon, um, I took a job working for David Adelsheim. So I've been very lucky. I've worked with pioneering wineries. Yeah. And working with David, um, I learned, of course, a lot there as well. And they were going through a, you know, a transition, too. Um, I think that's it was right around the time they were doing a rebuild of their winery and they were coming up with – um, some different different layers and tiers of their wines, and um, it was right before they were deciding to change their label. But it was an exciting time to be there because I again I learned a lot, um, great people to work with, and I, I have a it was nice. To... Aside, which was how controversial was the label change? Because working in restaurants and and switching vintages, mm-hmm. I mean, my entire staff was like everyone was couldn't. They were like, wait, this is the Adelsheim. Like it was so. You know, the, the labeling, for those who haven't seen it, was pictures of, I guess, the Adelsheim children, I, my recollection, or, or women in the family. Oh, like, the ladies. So there, yeah. there were women who were involved or helped out um, with the startup of the vineyard and the winery. So women like Diana Lett, she was probably the most iconic one with yeah. the dark hair on the Willamette Valley. They're, they're beautiful. Like, I, I loved those labels. I loved the um, – because they had, I think, brand equity, obviously. Yeah. But that's a decision that, you know, the owners have to come to when in their own evolution. So it's like, you know, every winery is different and every um, and every sort of vision for the future, you know, can can differ depending on values and how values change for a brand. So I, I totally understand why it was time for them to refresh. Um, that was, you know, that was their decision. I missed I, I left right before that decision was made. So I wasn't part of that decision. I just knew that it was coming up, and then they hired someone else when I left, um, and that person helped facilitate the new um, branding and the new label launch. Um, so I missed out on that, but but it was still a, an exciting time to be there because I think David David's just a visionary. He has so much passion for the industry, and um, you know, just a, a great place to work. And so, um, but it came to a point where I really wanted to get into production and I, there just the work for me doing marketing was lackluster and it was no disrespect to David or his team or his product. It just wasn't where I wanted to be anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so leaving Adelsheim, I enrolled in a winemaking program out here um, through it's the Northwest Viticulture Center. It's okay. through Chemeketa and it's a two year program and it was heavily funded by the ERAS Foundation. So when Nate, when um, Dick ERAS sold his winery to St. Michelle Wine Estates, um, he did set up a foundation that um, funded this wonderful program. And the labs are incredible, and they have a working winery. It's small. It's cute, actually. Um, it's like going into a Smurf village. Not really, but it's <laughs> just this really cute little working winery. And um, and I did their two-year program and studied the science of winemaking and knowledge and loved it. And actually one of the growers I work with now where I get my Gamay Noir, Jeff Havlin, we graduated together. We did this, oh, okay. the program together. And then I also graduated with um, 
Mark and Patty Bjornsson, who own Bjornsson Vineyard. So there's a lot of really great people in that class who not only I became friends with, colleagues with, but I actually work with. Um, and yeah, so when I, while I was in school, I did my first harvest at Anime Vineyards. And that was, again, a really wonderful winery to work with. Thomas Hausman, to me, is arguably one of the best white wine makers, not just in the Pacific Northwest, but here in this in the states he makes beautiful white wine i love all of his wines his red wines are great too but you're right all this time i was working with pinot noir except for when i was up at saint michelle and so how did i transition from um you know being completely surrounded by pinot noir and going in a different direction um has to do with the fact that when i was back home working for the distributor before i moved out to oregon um, my boss was from the Loire Valley, and we also represented the – I'm sorry, the um, we represented the Louis Dresner book. Mm. So I got to work with Joe Dresner in the market um, in Washington, D.C. Um, gosh, that was, again, 12, 13 years ago. And, um, and it made an impression. I loved those wines, especially the Loire Valley wines, Bernard Baudry. Um, of course, they've got – uh, Clou Rougeard, to me, that's arguably the best Cab Franc in the world. Um, so I had these stars sort of in the book that I got to work with, and they were, they just made an impression on me. And when I got to Oregon, I kind of scratched my head. I was like, you know, there's a, there are so many similarities to, um, you know, climate and um, some of the soils, especially when we get down to the Rogue Valley. Um, you know, I've been on this sort of kick to investigate limestone. Mm -hmm. I know there's limestone in Southern Oregon and people don't write about it or talk about it um, or even really look for it. But I, I just I kind of knew it was down there and I found I did some research and I found these old, old um, quarry maps in the late 1800s, early 1900s when Oregon was first a state and they were trying to decide like, what are our natural resources? Where do we mine? What do we have? What's the value? And it was this whole assessment that was put on by the Oregon State Department of Agriculture. So um, in my research, I did find um, several quarries and they grade limestone quarries by like high grade, low grade, um, and then based on quantity. So it's like mm -hmm. the quality and the quantity. And they, there's literally like a, a, a huge pathway of, of limestone in Southern Oregon, you know, kind of going through Southern Oregon, especially in the Rogue Valley. Okay. So um, I'm working on putting all that material together for, for hopefully some kind of interesting, you know, storytelling about Cab Franc in Oregon. But I kind of knew that there was, there were these um, potential spots that would make world-class Cab Franc and not to mimic what's happening in the Loire Valley, but just to give the grounding and the, the foundation for why those grapes should be grown and why we should be making delicious, lighter, less show-stopping versions of Cab Franc. Mm -hmm. So so those areas in the Rogue that you're looking at, were when you were mm -hmm. getting these maps, when you were looking at all that, were those already, were they planted to vine at all, or was it just like, well, yeah, there's such wide, there? Yeah, there's such wide, expansive areas that it's like, it's... Um, even if they're, they're quarries that aren't being mined per se anymore, they're still residual. So, um, yes, several of the, of the vineyards in the Rogue Valley, while they might not be claiming that they have limestone, uh, I'll tell you, we, we I have photos of the Craterview Ranch um, vineyard where I get my Malbec, my Sauvignon Blanc, and a good chunk of my Cabernet Franc 
Um, we have photos of ancient marine shellfish, ancient marine mollusk shells, and mm -hmm. shell imprints that date back 250 million years. And we had that uh, verified by one of the state geologists, Scott very Burns. Cool. Um, so it's very cool. We have photos, we have documentation, and you know that calcite that is formed with those mollusk shells. I mean, it's been in those soils for a long time, right? <laughs> They're gonna, you know, there is gonna be an influence. Now, when we get to there's people who have various varying um, opinions about Kilwar, but really yeah. ultimately, I I just find it interesting. To me, I'm intrigued. I like to, um, you know, I'm I like science. I like research. I like digging around and puns. <laughs> apparently yeah uh, i do like puns a lot actually but um well i was I gonna say like anyone to who's seen the name it. of your wines would understand your <laughs> appreciation for puns um which i also share which is one of the reasons i was first intrigued by them really <laughs> that's so nice well sometimes i have to turn it off because it can get annoying like if i'm in the winery like i i if an opportunity comes up it's like oh man you know, sometimes people appreciate them. Sometimes they give you that look and it's like, all right, all right, all right. But um, just, yeah, if you need new winery staff. Exactly. I don't know. I'm easily entertained, I guess, but it, well, I'm glad you are too. So we, we have that kinship. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so a good pun is, is uh, it's just, it's a, it's a little mini delight in the, in the course of the day. Um, so yeah, actually, we're in general. Great. Yeah. yeah. I do want to talk real quick about a couple of the wines that you make because I think they're they're really interesting to me and and I'm just very curious about the sort of um, mentality behind them um, and and I know we've talked mm -hmm. a lot about Cab Franc so I want to start there um, mm -hmm. and I think the first kind of I think from what I understand the first wine you actually made on your own was um, a thing that basically as far as I'm aware of didn't exist prior to you making it which is um, a white wine from Cabernet Franc or your Blanc de Cabernet Franc um, so where did that where did that idea come from? Well, you know, I I really wanted to start out with something that was going to turn heads and, and take attention because if I was just going to launch out my first vintage with, you know, I only had money and time to do like 700 pounds worth of grapes, which was like a barrel. So, you know, I was limited with resources at the moment in 2011 when I decided I'm, I'm now is the time. I knew I wanted to do my own thing, but, you know, it was kind of like, it's now or never, I'm just going to do it. So I contacted my friend, Chris, um, Chris Berg of Roots Wine, and he, I knew he was getting Cab Franc from Walla Walla. My first vintage was actually not from Oregon. It was from the Lake Colleen Vineyard up oh, in okay. Walla Walla, which is the McKibben family. Yeah. So that's where um, that's where Chris was getting his Cab Franc. So, you know, he was like willing to sell me 700 pounds, 750 pounds worth. Um, and I made that first batch at Laurel Ridge Winery while I was working harvest at Shea Wine Cellar. So I was basically like a seller hand at Shea. Mm -hmm working for the winemaker there, Drew Voigt, um, in 2010 and 2011. And um, so I would go up to Shea, do my whatever had to be done, and at the end of the day, run down to Laurel Ridge and, you know, check my bricks and temps of my one barrel. <laughs> and it's kind of funny that I started off so small. But, yeah, when, I, when that fruit came in, my first thought was to do a rosé. But then again, I was thinking, well, that's – 
still I I still want to do something that's kind of weird and austere and and that's kind of again turn head like what the heck is this? Um, and I, being a lover of Loire wines, had tasted plenty of Cremant de Loire sparkling wines that had Cab Franc as a base or as a blend. And I thought about you know. In Champagne, they use Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, um, either for the Blanc de Noir wines, sparkling wines, or they, uh, or for rosés. Um, so it's been done a white wine from red grapes, just sparkling. And here in Oregon, there are a handful of wineries that make white Pinot Noir. And I thought, well, obviously there's great acidity to those red grapes. Same with Cabernet Franc. Um, if they can do a, an interesting standalone white wine from those red grapes, why wouldn't they do the same thing with Cab Franc? I mean, it's already being used for base wine for sparkling wine. So to me, it just made sense. Um, it wasn't just some kind of random nebulous idea of, I'm going to take red grapes and make it white wine. It was really based on the fact that it's been done, just not as a still wine. Mm. So what what kind of varietal character do you feel like the – the Blanc de Cabernet Franc carries forward because obviously, you know, I think um, I'd be you know, aromatically, I guess you would, you would expect much of the same aromatic, um, you know, those same compounds to be present in the, in the white version as in a red, but you're obviously not getting tannin, you're not getting the the color. So how does, how does that Blanc de Cabernet Franc to you, uh, how is it evocative of Cabernet Franc? How is it maybe different from the sort of red wine? Yeah. You know, I've tasted with, Several people uh, along the way over the years, whether they were restaurant psalms or friends who are just who love wine or other wine professionals, and it's interesting to me that the those who are professionals will often like if they close their eyes, they're like, "This reminds me of a red wine," mm-hmm. and will laugh and they'll be like, "Yeah, it's just it's like it's the red it's the white wine for red wine lovers." You know, we joke about it um, because it does have a savory quality to it. It's not. Um, and it does still have quite a bit of acidity because we pick at low bricks when the pH, the pH is super low. And, um, and so, you know, I'm after something. So I, I work with Herb Quaddy who owns Quaddy, uh, Quaddy North wines and a vineyard management company in Southern Oregon. And this, the Blanc de Cabernet Franc since 2012 has been from his vineyard. So no longer in Washington, no longer Lake Colleen. I've, I've cultivated a relationship with Herb to, to do something very specific. I sat down with him right before 2012, before that vintage, that harvest. And I kind of, I, I think I taste, I might've tasted with him the 11 from Lake Colleen. And I, I, I kind of explained, I want to do everything from Oregon. Um, you know, I know you have Cab Franc. What do you think of farming for your Cab Franc to be a white wine? And, you know, at first he was like, what? (laughs) And then he, you know, he, and then he was like, he, you know, he, I think he's just such an intuitive, smart man. He's kind of a genius. He, he thought about it. And one of the things I said is, you know, I want to dial back the methoxypyrazines. Methoxypyrazines are the chemical compounds that are found in um, certain varieties, including Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc in particular, they're all in the same family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's what brings out that bell pepper green vegetal quality to those wines. Um, and so I didn't want Cab Franc that tastes like bell pepper. That just isn't interesting to me. I'm not interested in it being the this, this sort of most um, present flavor 
in a wine or aromatic in a wine. It's going to be there. It's part of the plant physiology, but I'd rather it be kind of tertiary, not primary. So um, we talked about what that would mean and when to um, when to impart or to implement leaf removal, when to irrigate, um, all of those things that can help sort of um, push back those methoxypyrazines so that we get more of the fruit flavors up front. So that first vintage, uh, 2012, um, yeah, it was, we got just this really interesting, great acidity um, and a nice brininess to the wine. Mm-hmm. Um, I stir it on the leaves. So um, and that year, I believe in 2012, I used oak and stainless steel. I aged, what I did is I fermented an oak and then I transferred to stainless steel drums, did batonage um, up until going into bottle. So I, I wanted to really take in those um, mana proteins from the yeast cells and really get this kind of rich texture. Um, so there's no malolactic fermentation in any any of the white cab franc. It's always it's always picked up that nice sort of texture from lee stirring. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so it's it, the white cap franc really kind of has apricot and peach flavors on the lychee flavors on the palate, but it also goes vegetal. I mean, it get in, in aromatically, there's always this green component to it. Um, and when I tasted with my one of my mentors, Drew Voigt, back in, I guess it was that 12 vintage, um, and he kept picking up tarragon. And I was like, yeah, there's, there is a hint of that. It's just, it can be very herbal. And um, Drew's kind of a proponent so, of, of a lot of leaves stirring. I know, I think with like his Pinot Blanc and stuff, he does a lot of leaves stirring on those wines, right? Early, yeah. I think that's arguably the best Pinot Blanc in Oregon, for sure. He makes beautiful wine. I mm-hmm. love that wine. Yeah. 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 So um, he certainly has influenced um, my winemaking. I, you know, he's a great winemaker. He's probably, he, he to me is one of the smartest people out there. And he's, he's a go-to guy when something goes wrong. He's a guy you go to because he knows everything. He really does. He's like a walking encyclopedia of wine information. Um, And he's passionate about it. He really is. And he's a great teacher too. So yeah, I learned a lot. Um, I, I mean, he really was a primary mentor for me while I was um, figuring out style and what I wanted to do. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, that I guess that's kind of how I arrived at that wine and, and, and sort of how it, it does pick up some of that Cab Franc character, but it's the most fun wine to bring to a dinner party and blind taste people <laughs> on because they have no idea what it is. <laughs> yeah, and, if you, and if you literally blind taste them on it where they can't even see what's in the glass, then I think you probably get some very confused even pretty experienced wine drinkers. I know when I tasted it uh, with you, in a, uh, I don't know, about a year ago, um, I it wasn't blind. Yeah. I could tell it was white, and I knew what it was, but it was still very striking, the sort of the ways in which it was ve- definitely reminiscent of, of a red wine um, in a way that few, even sort of more um, full-bodied style whites uh, tend not to have just that kind of, yeah, that savory quality and some of those kind of almost um, sort of, I would, I mean, I call them savory herbs or even there was like a slight, I don't know, that slight kind of, uh, I feel like gaminess to the wine. That's just not a thing that I feel like I pick up in whites very often. Yeah. So. It's weird, but I love it. I love the weirdness and <laughs> exactly. I'm okay calling it weird. <laughs> you know, but I will say, I, yeah. Oh, I was just but say, I will, that's a good I will, thing for anyone to, you got to love the weird. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Or at least be intrigued by something that isn't what you expect. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I, the final thing I'll say about that white cap bronc is that, you know, for me, I serve it always at cellar temp because if it's too cold, you're going to miss out on what makes it so interesting and weird. <laughs> yeah. You just kind of you get more of that kind of white wine structure and acidity and it's good, but yeah, it's not as sort of expressive and interesting. Um, so quickly, what, I, I, you make a few different reds as well. Um, I know you make uh, cool. at least a little bit of 100% Cab Franc, and then um, do you also make a 100% Gamay, or do you just do the the Touraine blend, or what? Yeah, I only use the Gamay in the blend, because okay. aside from the Malbec, everything kind of is, aside from the Malbec and the Sauvignon Blanc, everything else is centered around Cab Franc. Mm-hmm. So it's, but it's 40% Gamay, 60% Cab Franc. That's usually the balance. Okay. And then, um, and then a couple reserve cab francs as well. Very cool. And are you, mm-hmm. are you finding that, um, as you sort of work with the same vineyard sites for a few years, are you, are you getting, uh, are you getting kind of a better sense of, cause, cause I think one of the things really interesting to me about what you're doing is, you know, you're not just working with varietals that people don't necessarily associate with, um, Oregon wine, again, they're not Pinot Noir, uh, but also parts of Oregon, right. namely the Rogue and the Applegate Valleys that are not um, necessarily also on people's radar, probably because there's not a, a ton of Pinot Noir in there. So so what, to what extent are you are you seeing, um, like, like, how do those valleys present themselves? Are they, are they, I mean, obviously, geologically, sounds like they're somewhat different from the Willamette, they're obviously further south. But, but what are some of the, the state defining characteristics of those valleys, maybe? Um, you know, and it's and I'm still very new to that area because for the most for all of the time that I've lived in Oregon, I've been up here. I lived in Dundee or Portland. Um, so you know, the Rogue and Applegate Valleys are still very new to me, and I'm still learning. And that's kind of why I was digging around doing my own research because there's some information about soil series. And of course, when we go to the Oregon Wine Symposium every year, it's usually held in what February. Um, you know, when I first started going to the Oregon Wine Symposium, there was very little talk uh, outside of the Willamette Valley, and that's changed over the years, and it's becoming more and more inclusive with um, the other wine-growing regions of the state, and um, and in that, they're presenting more and more material that that, you know, relates to a larger group of people who are making wine in Oregon, so... Um, and that in in those presentations, I'm talking about anything from state of the union, like where what's happening in those regions, and then also um, um, issues that that come up in specific growing regions and things so takeaways that we can learn from even seasoned um, viticulturists and mm-hmm. winemakers. Um, and so, when I, really Herb Quaddy was my first real introduction to Southern Oregon because of his wines, Quaddy North wines. Um, and I had had a few other Southern Oregon wines over the years, but really his were the standouts for me. And um, I liked what he was doing. I liked his marketing. I liked him as a person. And I just thought he's someone I wanted to align with and learn from because, you know, I needed to be a sponge at that point and I needed to learn. But Applegate Valley is where I went first and that's working with Herb. And the landscape's just completely different. I mean, you feel like you're somewhere between Oregon. I mean, yeah, somewhere between like the rainforesty northern part of Oregon and California because you are. <laughs> that's exactly where you are. You're between those two places. Um, and 
with that, you know, we have even up the um, valley level is a is a higher elevation. So you're looking at cool nights, really cool nights, um, but yet very hot um, growing degree days in the summertime. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's just a different it just has a different feel, a different landscape. It's drier. The hillsides are golden and you know different color. You know, it's just it has a different feel. Um, and and then from there, I, I got uh, I got introduced to Michael Moore of Quail Run Vineyards and got to know his vineyards and his team and um, and it's predominantly his fruit is uh, Rogue Valley. And so, same thing. I mean, these are two areas that are um, you know they're susceptible. Well, especially the Applegate Valley in 2013, they are susceptible to forest fires from electrical mm-hmm. storms. Um, what does that mean? It was actually only one one or two vintages where there were any forest fires since I've been making wine down there. Um, and I learned what that means uh, from a from a vineyard perspective of when smoke taint can happen and when it won't happen. And um, there's this whole there's a whole essay about um, glycol and and that's the compound that is found in wines as a result. It's a residual result from um, forest fires and mm-hmm. they've had done more research down in California for obvious reasons. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you know, I've just, I've just been learning. I'm still learning. I mean, I'm by no means an expert on Southern Oregon, um, viticulture or Southern Oregon geography or, you know, geology or climatology, any of it, you know, so I'm still learning, but I have taken it upon myself to learn about the soil series about, um, like I said, doing this research on the on the limestone quarries that were there, um, and still is evident in some of the some of the regions within the um, within the Rogue Valley, and then also learning about um, you know temperature uh, and weather patterns. So I'm still learning, but I will say this: that there are more and more people in Southern Oregon um, who are fine-tuning their winemaking, and you're going to see and continue to see improved, better, um, interesting, exciting wines coming from that region. It is already um, garnering attention as one of the top places to visit for wine country travel, um, and I feel like it's just, it's, it's, a, it's hitting, it's, it's about to just hit its moment, you know, not the only moment, but I think it's really on its way to, like, um, getting that recognition for being a really special place. And so it's kind of exciting to be part of it while that happens. Excellent. One last uh, question for you before we uh, go here, which is, um, so obviously, you know, you're making, um, as you said, mostly wines from Cabernet Franc. You make uh, a Malbec, you make a Gamay and Cab Franc blend, and you make some Sauvignon Blanc. Are you looking at Chenin Blanc, obviously, as the other kind of major varietal from the Loire, or, well, also um, Melon de Bourgogne, I guess, but... Um, but is that something that's on the radar for you or sparkling wine, or are you kind of happy with what you're at right now? Well, I forgot to mention, I, I produced my first rosé this year. So ah. I made a Cab Franc rosé. There you go. So I have a white, red, you know, red, white, and pink. There you go. <laughs> so I added that. But no, I like Chenin Blanc. Um, I love Vouvray, but, um, you know, I'm looking around like what's planted, what's available. I, I'm not pushed in that direction. I, you know, I thought about it when I first got started and a couple other producers kind of took off with that grape. And I'm like, you know what, that's, that's cool. Like I'm happy to see other wine producers here in Portland 
um, really running with it and doing a great job with it and making some really beautiful wines. Um, I'm just not, my inspiration hasn't gone there. So it's really gone to creating my own thing, a white cab franc, um, looking at Sauvignon Blanc and making it unlike any other American Sauvignon Blanc. I don't, you know, and it's not like New Zealand. It's not like California. If anything, it is closer to a Pui Fume, but it really, I'm really trying to take a moment to look at what is, what does Oregon have to offer for the varietals that I want to work with? I, I, I'm really trying to kind of move myself from that Loaregon um, concept that I felt was necessary in the beginning because there was no point of reference for Oregon Cab Franc. You know, someone could taste and be like, well, what's this about? Like, I don't want them to make an association with sort of the bigger, um, heavier, more splintered, disjointed. And I'm those cap francs that have been made previously that are all bell pepper, that's not what I'm interested in making. So I felt like I needed a reference point, and that's why the Loire was my reference point. But I'm really trying to focus now on these are grapes that I just happen to love. Yes, they happen to be um, beautifully made in the Loire Valley, but I want to talk about Oregon, Southern Oregon in particular, and, and what I can do with these grapes and make them uniquely Oregon. Excellent. Well, look forward to continuing to taste over the years as they that sense of uh, place evolves with uh, with time and uh, experience. Thanks, Leah. Thank you so much for joining me. I know it's a busy time of year. I really do appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you for your interest and for being such a gracious host. Oh, excellent. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks again to Leah Jorgensen for joining me. You can find her wines online at leahjorgensensellers.com or on Twitter at leahjorgensenor. As for me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at zgebal, that's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E, or you can check out my wine classes and events at vinetrainings.com, that's vine with a V. Thanks again for listening to Disgorged, and cheers. Ha, ha, ha.